I'm sure in some way our experience of the revolution meant that my father thought, well, all your best laid plans can come to nothing, so you should try and do something you love. This is Seven Stages, a podcast from the stage sponsored by Audible. Over the last couple of years, two of the most iconic TV characters have been priests. In one corner, Andrew Scott's hot priest from Fleabag, all sexy and stylish and cool. And in the other, the Reverend Francis Seaton from this country, infinitely kind and patient, holding a little buffeted West Country community together and dealing with the various tribulations of Kerry and Curtin Mucklow. The man who brought that icon to life is Paul Chahidi, not only one of the most versatile, scene-stealing actors across stage and screen, but one of the most absolutely lovely people in the business too. It's been a busy few years for Paul. Besides the vicar, he's played Stalin's defence minister, Bulganin, in Death of Stalin, the enforcing archangel Sandalfon in Good Omens. You might have seen him on stage in The Vote at the Donmar, or alongside Benedict Cumberbatch as an arsonist at the Royal Court. He stole the show as Mariah in Mark Rylance's all-male Twelfth Night, a performance which Hilton Owls of The New Yorker called one of the greatest performances I have ever seen. For me, Paul's incredible knack as an actor is taking a role that looks small or odd or unremarkable on paper and turning it into like a finely honed little gem, something that just really stands out. And as we go through the seven questions here, we chat about Paul's early life, who was born in Tehran, and coming over to the UK, and his dad getting caught up in the Iranian revolution, and we uncover the fact that he's part of a secret cult with Mel Gedroich and Jez Butterworth. I love listening to Paul's calm, soothing voice, and I hope you do too. Here he is. So it starts very simply, which is, what was the first show you remember seeing? The first show I can memorably and meaningfully remember seeing was actually not my first show, because the first show I do remember seeing was a pantomime at the Oxford Apollo when I was probably about eight, and it was Cinderella, and I went with my parents... I remember being absolutely thrilled when they were asking people to come down onto the stage, but also terrified and being paralysed with fear and and not having the courage to get up and put my hand up and just deeply regretting it. Left me slightly traumatised <laughs> <laughs> and with deep feelings of inadequacy. So I do have memories of that. But actually the the first play or performance I remember seeing and it having a really deep impact on me and kind of inspiring me to start acting uh, was the the production of Henry V that Ken Branagh was in at Stratford. I think it must have... I was about 14 or 15, so it was something like 1984. My mum and dad took me and they paid the extra money for some good stall seats. And I'd never sat that close to a stage before in my life. It was electrifying because I was studying it for O-levels, as they were then called, GCSEs. And, you know, for like, like for so many people, Shakespeare was a bit of a forced march. It had the potential to be a very joyless experience because you were studying it for an exam. I think that's the worst possible introduction to any playwright or, 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 or writing. But we had a wonderful teacher who inspired us and was himself, could have been an actor. His name was Simon Elliott. And he encouraged us to go to the theatre and to act out the plays in lessons in order to, in order to bring it to life. And I remember going to see this production and it had 
oh, just an extraordinary cast. I mean, you had people like Brian Blessed in it, and you know, Harold Innocent, and there was rain on stage outside the the scene where they're laying siege to Harfleur, and rain came, real rain, real water. It was extraordinary, and you know, Brian Blessed with his extraordinary presence and voice standing there getting soaked with the others and Kenneth Branagh being absolutely mesmerising I thought Um, so that that was the first production I meaningfully remember sort of seeing Did you go to the theatre much as a child? Was that a regular occurrence? No My mum and dad were very educated cultured people My dad who died five years ago he, he was Iranian He was in in the early days of his career, uh, a lawyer, and then he went into education programmes and literacy programmes for women in Iran and helping set up universities. Then he came over here and was a diplomat. And my mother was an anthropologist. And so they were very well-read and cultured people, but theatre actually was not a big part of who they were. So it, it started from school, really, needing to go and see some plays. And then because I needed to go and see them, like the Henry V I was talking about, it, it then led to me wanting to see more and more. And um, I was very lucky, as I say, to have this brilliant teacher when I was about 13 or 14 who who stayed with me at the school on and off until I was 17. It just lit a fire in me that I didn't even know was there because I was quite a shy child, really. I felt like I'd found my tribe... And I felt totally at ease in the theatre. When I walk into any theatre now, I feel like I'm home, so I can be abroad or somewhere. There's a, there is a universality to, to theatres as spaces. So, so you know, he would take us, this teacher, to Stratford. Uh, I'd never forget, you know, we went to see something at the Donmar Warehouse, a, a production of Twelfth Night that Cheek by Jowl had done, Declan Donnellan had directed, and because we were in a small space, it was the first time I'd ever been that close to the actors, and someone was playing the saxophone in the in the interval. It was so thrilling. It felt so kind of dangerous and new to me. I mean, it says as much about my sheltered upbringing as anything else, but it was deeply, deeply exciting. Yes, it was rather like falling in love. I mean, you mentioned a second ago sheltered upbringing, but it sounded a little bit, I guess strange, certainly at points. So born in Iran and your parents then moved to the UK and then you you went through the kind of upheaval of the revolution. So how much time did you spend in Iran as a child and how aware were you of what was happening politically there? Well, so my mum is British. They met, <laughs> it's very romantic story, they met in, in Paris in the late 50s. Uh, Mum was training to be a teacher of English as a foreign language and Dad was doing his law, international law PhD at the Sorbonne in Paris and they met in night class to learn French. Dad finished his studies, ended up in Oxford and settled there but meanwhile he got posted back to Iran. I was born in 69 in Tehran and came over here when I was about two, and I was brought up speaking Farsi at home, eating Persian food, and Dad was at the embassy in London. He'd come to the end of his posting in 78. Just as things had started to kind of unravel under the Shah, 
and there was serious civil unrest and it was the big, what turned out to be the beginnings of the Islamic Revolution. And Dad went back for his next posting and uh, he basically was waiting to hear what his next posting as a diplomat would be when the revolution happened and he was stuck there for 10 months. It was a very stressful time and worrying time. My sister was actually at a boarding school and I was with my mum and I was about 10. So it was effectively me and my mum for long periods on our own. And in this very strange situation where suddenly my father wasn't there anymore and we would maybe speak to him once a week from whichever of his relatives' houses he was staying at. And everyone just had to be very careful because revolutions are brutal and chaotic and there's a lot of score settling that goes on and it's an awful situation. It's a civil war by any other name. It was a very worrying time and although Dad, I think, was certainly not a political person in any particular way, just merely being part of a, the foreign office under the previous government put him in danger in those early days. So we, it took him a year to get out nearly uh, and eventually when he did, he got back to to the UK and, you know, here was this man in his late 40s who was at kind of approaching the height of his career as a diplomat who suddenly had nothing. And it was the same for all his friends who had been diplomats and held posts in government or were university lecturers or engineers or what have you. They were all just left with nothing. Not nothing, because they'd survived, you know, and there were people we we knew who died or were tortured or it, it, it was a terrible time and a lot of our friends were suddenly overnight making pizzas in pizza parlours or delivery drivers or taxi drivers or whatever and it, it, it kind of it put everything in perspective and at, at an early age and I, I think it gave me a sense that you know nothing is that permanent and you can't take everything for granted and it, it it sort of taught me the value of certain things that mattered, I think. And also, perhaps, it instilled in me a sense that, you know, the most important things you have are the things you can take with you, which are your values and your education, if you can get a, an education of some kind, whatever form that education may take. Yeah. Because that will survive anything. But, you know, wealth and status and this and that and the other. I mean, my father was never interested in any of that. Neither was my mum. What is my mum? So they instilled those values in me. But, you you know, you, it was a very testing time. But, you know, we were, we were the lucky ones. And I, I never forget that. Yeah. What age were you when you sort of decided acting was what you wanted to do? And, and what was your parents' reaction to it? I studied Arabic and Persian at university, so nothing to do with drama particularly. And I thought there are a few things I might do. One was be a journalist, maybe write about the Middle East. I was very interested in the politics and the, the history of the Middle East and, and its culture. And I'd lived in Egypt for a year for the course and I'd, I'd really loved it there. And the other was performing. Uh, so <laughs> towards the end of university, I applied to journalism courses and newspapers and I auditioned for some drama schools. I got rejected by a few drama schools, but I got offered a place at Central and at Lambda. And uh, I eventually ended up going to Central. And that was the point at which I thought, well, I better <laughs> tell my mum and dad what I'm doing, because I don't think I had really. 
And I was very nervous because I thought, well, they've supported me so much. And I felt this responsibility as, as the son of, you know, certainly on my father's side, you know, someone who'd come to this country leaving war and revolution uh, and putting everything into the idea of education. I thought, I wonder what he will think about me becoming an actor. You just don't know. You just don't know. There's no template for it. There was no template for it in our family. But it turned out I really underestimated them both. And I underestimated my father because actually he was very accepting. My memory is he listened in silence when I told him. And then my mum later said, well, I said, what, did, what was dad's reaction? He was quite subdued. And he said, your dad later said to me that Give, uh, my real name is Give. Uh, my my middle name is Paul, which I use for acting. But Give has done everything we've wanted him to do up to now. So I think it's entirely fair that he does what he wants. I am sure, in some way, our experience of the revolution meant that my father thought, well, all your best laid plans can come to nothing. So you should try and do something you love, and you're more likely to succeed in that. And I thought that was extraordinary to come from my parents, and particularly my dad, who was a, a Middle Eastern man who was born in 1932 in Iran and who just was so forward-thinking for someone of his generation. And having said that, so was his father. He sent his kids abroad to study and encouraged his five... My dad had five sisters. He said, you should all get a proper education, go and study. And that was something that he must have passed on to my father and, and my father, I hope I'll pass that on to my son. Yeah. And so the second question is, what was the first show you worked on? So presumably this was after Central, you know, first first professional gig. What what was it? Well, it was extremely high end. It was the it was actually a double bill. The first of which sounds quite high end. It was a Moliere, a very unknown Moliere, and followed by the Christmas show, which was the Jungle Book, and it was at the Redgrave Theatre in Farnham, which has sat sadly. Since the season I was in back then, closed down. We like those of us who were in it in those shows like to joke that we closed the theatre down, uh, and we think it's our fault. I was in the Moliere with Steve Mangan was in it with me. I went on to do the Jungle Book, and we were doing three shows a day. Bloody hell! It was a real education as an actor, but you know you really learn about your stamina and your technique and craft from just doing it so often. From memory, I was something like Villager Number 3 and Monkey Number 2, which, <laughs> you know, before you write it off, Tim, I'm going to say they were quite special performances and Fine some might say for... the pinnacle of my <laughs> acting career. <laughs> but I do remember climbing up this 60-foot frame, it felt like, uh, with uh, minimal safety measures, I suspect. You know, really overacting. <laughs> That's why the Red Grove Theatre shut down. <laughs> She probably did. I mean, I'm not sure how truthful my monkey was, but I definitely played it for laughs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what were the roles like that you were getting out of drama school? Because I, I know you've talked about how you felt like you didn't, maybe didn't quite fit in at Central mm. and mm. that they had difficulty placing you in roles and, and, and you were asked to play a Pakistani janitor at one point and, you know, it just d it didn't seem like they kind of got you. When you finished, what, what was the sort of roles you were getting? I do think it's important to say, as if, if people are listening, I, I nearly gave up by the end of drama school. I found it that hard. I really did not enjoy large chunks of it. Though, part of it was probably because I'd been a student already for four years and I was asked to be a student again. I found that you were 
slightly treated more like children at drama school, uh, whereas at university I'd been treated much more like an adult. It wasn't just that, though. I, uh, it was partly because I felt like they didn't quite know where to place me. Yes, that became apparent towards the end when you were doing the final year shows. And I I could see I got this funny round face, I was losing my hair, and you kind of go, well, yes, I see why you might cast me as the 80-year-old Jewish New Yorker or, well, not the Pakistani janitor. Because I was like, well, please, you know, I'm not Pakistani and I'm not going to do an accent for you. That's just you know borderline racist but it was it was just it was it was a very chaotic time there was favoritism and there were certain people who were always getting these great roles and then those of us who they weren't quite sure about how to place us just got these bizarre parts and it was very hard to imagine how I was going to get representation or any work from it. It sounds like I'm bitter about it, but I'm not. I was at the time, I was angry about it because I thought, well, these teachers who were doling out the roles have so much power and it, there's so much responsibility with that. And it was slightly out of control, I thought, with, with a couple of individuals. There were some wonderful teachers there too. We got to the final two weeks where we were supposed to have these showcases, which were speeches, and we were asked to find speeches from plays and, you know, cull one and a half minutes for a monologue. And I, I just was tra trawling through Chekhov and Shakespeare or whatever, like everyone else, and it just wasn't working. And I got a friend in the end. We got together, a friend called Simon Block, who then became a very successful playwright and television writer, and he wrote a short monologue for me. And having had no interest from any, not a single agent or casting director at that point, I had about eight or nine offers. Just, it was literally by the skin of my teeth. And I honestly, I'm not making this up, I was so ready to... I thought I'll give it two years and then if this carries on the way I think it's going to carry on, which is, i.e., down the, the sinkhole, I'll just cut my losses and I'll find something else to do with my life. I had no idea what that would be. It really instilled in me the absolute belief that success is luck. So much of it is luck. There are better actors than me from my year at drama school who gave up. Because this life was not for them. And this level of insecurity and this lack of control over your career was just making them unhappy. And I never forget that persevere but if something is really making you miserable you don't have to keep doing it do you remember any of the monologue God, i can't it was brilliant because it was so perfect for me he'd written it for me and we'd we'd kind of molded it together and it was about a man <laughs> don't judge me but i know what you're gonna think you'll probably think oh yes i can see that there's a man who's talking from his bedsit about having applied to be the next director general of the BBC. He's clearly too young for it. But then it gradually reveals he's living in this fantasy world and he has no experience whatsoever and he's expecting to hear back any day soon and it's, it's heartbreaking and hopeless and yet hilarious as well. And he's got this ineffable logic about why he will get the job and it's just... It was really sad and really funny at the same time. But it was it was perfect for me. I think I have that kind of face. So. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I guess it feels from from the perspective of watching you and and seeing you that the last couple of years has been, have been quite big ones for you. 
this country may be the kind of biggest example of that. Has it felt like that from your perspective, that it's sort of, there's this sort of snowball that's got a bit bigger in the last couple of years? Or does it feel like a continuation of, of the rhythm that you've been in? No, it would be disingenuous to say I didn't feel any different. It does, the last four or five years. And part of that was me deciding that the time had come to really try and do more screen work because I was interested in doing more screen work. I love theatre, it's why I became an actor and I will always love it and I will always want to go back to it. But I had done a lot of it. The one thing my agent said you'll just have to do is say no to theatre and you may have to be unemployed for a bit. And I I talked the talk for a long time about doing that and then finally I thought I'd better do something. And I did start to say no to things and it, it was quite hairy. I was unemployed for about sort of seven or eight months so I'd said no to some theatres I love that even two years before I'd gone are you crazy turning that down how could you turn that down when you've dreamed most of your career of working there but I had worked there before and I it wasn't moving things forward in some way and you have to you have to be brave at certain points and I I talked it through with my wife because you have to do this together and she said yeah I think you're right and I'll tell you if I think this has gone on too long but you absolutely have to. Question three is the hard one. What's your favourite show you've worked on on stage? It's such a horrible question to ask (laughs) I can't believe you're asking me that Um, I can give you probably two shows that fit the bills. I suppose the two shows that I would perhaps pick would be Twelfth Night because that had so many iterations and lasted over 10 years (laughs) my career because we did it first at Middle Temple Hall to mark the 400th anniversary of its first performance in that very space where it was first performed and one of the performances fell on that same night and it was done by candlelight largely and you know there were original oil portraits of Elizabeth I and um, so in that one you know Mark Rylance was Olivia, as he was throughout. I was Mariah. We also had Eddie Redmayne playing Viola. And uh, that was when I met Eddie. And um, we both had to have our torsos waxed for (laughs) Viola and Mariah, respectively. So we went to uh, some backstreet waxing salon in Southwark. (laughs) And uh, it was just full of ladies who were slightly perplexed as we walked in and then were just in fits of hysterics after we walked out because we'd been screaming basically for half an hour as they waxed us. Imagine that now though. Imagine <laughs> Paul Tahidi and Eddie Redmayne walking into a waxing sound. <laughs> well, I don't... Well, Eddie Redmayne, I would turn a few heads. Uh, Paul Tahidi, I'm not, sh- not so sure. But um, yes, it was an experience. So you have these experiences. It was wonderful. Then that went to the Globe and then nothing for 10 years and then Mark and Sonia Friedman and Tim Carroll got in touch and said, look, we want to revive this. I was at Stratford at the time. I just had a baby. We just had our son. I was like, oh, do I want to go back to something? I've never gone back to something. It's, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. The proposition was it would be on at the Globe and then go into the West End. Kate said, I don't care what you want. (laughs) We've just had a baby and we need some work and it's in London. So just suck it up. (laughs) (laughs) So the other side of me mm, being really fussy, (laughs) sometimes I just, it is teamwork. You have to listen to your other half if if you're, if you're in a partnership there. And, uh, and I did it. I'm so glad I did. I nearly said no. And and it led to so many wonderful things. Yes, some work, uh, but also 
doing it in the West End, working with Stephen Fry and Roger Lloyd Pack and Mark again, and so old friends from the original production at the Globe. And that then led to me going to Broadway for the first time ever and living in New York with my wife Kate and our son George. And then a Tony nomination. Yes, I got I got a Tony nomination, which I really wasn't expecting. Well, the unfair was... thing about that was that you were nominated in the same category as Mark Rylitz and Stephen Fry for the same play. I know, but I do you know what? I was... I so not expected that. Just to be nominated was extraordinary. So what was the... You said you, you had two that you had in mind, so what was the other one? Well, the other one was a vote at the Donmar, which was about five years ago, I think, now. It was joyous. It kind of was a distillation of everything I love about the theatre. There was a cast of about 50. It was beautifully written by James Graham and brilliantly directed by Joe C. Rourke. And what I particularly loved I loved the role I fell in love with this ludicrous character Howard Roberts who was obsessed with a one-way system in his his local around his local branch of Morrison's and he was running for MP I mean god that looks like sort of a golden age now doesn't it doesn't it (laughs) politically (laughs) um but it was the fact that I found it very moving that there was a room of something like 40 actors or 50 actors of such varying ages and backgrounds. So you would have Tim West and Judy Dench, they won't mind me saying this, 80 or 81, something like that. And then you'd have people in the middle age-wise, like me, in my late 40s, and then you'd have people who were literally 18 or 19, just starting acting. And at no point was there a hierarchy. No one cared about how little or how much experience they hugely respected each other and that was the thing there was a huge respect and an enjoyment and celebration age distinctions just melted away the status just melted away it was it was extraordinary and i and just on a living history level i thought how extraordinary when judy or tim were 18 or 19 they would have come into contact with actors in their 80s who would have acted in the late Victorian era. And now they are working with 18-year-olds in 2015 or 14 or whatever it was. And question for them, what are you working on at the moment? And obviously this is a slightly vexed question. (laughs) 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 But I know... You're a very cruel man. Well, (laughs) this is how the questions... We wrote these in a more innocent age, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I mean, gosh, how much can change in two months? You were working on a, a, a this American sitcom. Yes. Do you, do you know what the status of that is? Was it all filmed or is there more to do? Yes, yeah, so I can tell you about that. I mean, that it had many unique aspects and is beautifully written and very, very funny and warm-hearted from the star and creator who's this brilliant actress and comedian called um, Nassim Pedrad out in America. She's Iranian-American. She is from the background of improvisation and she was on a regular on Saturday Night Live, if you know that programme. And she had written this wonderful comedy centering on an Iranian-American family. And I was going to play my first ever fully-fledged Iranian character. I was playing the Iranian uncle and the whole story centred around a 15-year-old boy just trying to fit in, very Americanized, but from an Iranian-American background, in denial about his heritage, his Iranian heritage, because he just wants to fit in. And the other thing was that Nassim, who is a 30-something-year-old woman, was playing the 14-year-old boy. It was 10 episodes. We were, we'd done six, and we were film, filming in Portland. 
it started to become increasingly clear that something was going to have to give, but we weren't getting the word that anything was halting. And I was in Portland watching things unfurl in America in real time, which is alarming to say the least. I mean, watching Trump's daily briefings in those early weeks of the crisis was terrifying. And then we got the call on a Friday saying we are suspending filming and I was on a plane the next day because I wanted to just get back to my family and not, as I feared might be possible back then, be stuck in America uh, if they quarantine everyone. So so we got six out of ten in the can. They have been very positive in the sounds they've made about coming back to it when we will, when we can. And I think they're serious about that. And that makes sense because they've got the set built and they've got most of it, or they've got more than half already filmed. And, you know, people are going to need some... Co- they're going to need some things to broadcast. Yeah. Question five, then. What was the one show that got away? So either as a as an actor where you just missed the audition or, or as an audience member, legendary show that you had a ticket for and you put it through the washing machine or something like that. There are... Oh, my goodness, so many shows I've missed that I wanted to see. But I suppose one of the performances that has a, at least has a story to it is I I kept not being able to make a performance of One Man, Two Governors. And I missed it at the National, and I was feeling terrible about that. It just sounded like the type of show I love. I then discovered it was doing a National tour, and I thought, right, this is my chance. And months in advance, my wife, who had seen it, said, I booked you a ticket. You're going to go and see it in Aylesbury on this day. And I said, yes, yes, fantastic. <laughs> what happens? Our son is born. Just <laughs> right. I missed it. Um, so luckily for me, as with so many great productions now, I can at least, I caught up with it recently, watching it on NT Live. Question six. If you had an empty space and an unlimited budget, what would you stage now? What do you think we need right now? Well, I don't know if I've misunderstood the question, but I tell you what I would really like to stage, and I might as well be honest, is I've had this fantasy with a group of friends to just form a theatre company on a Greek island doing nightly performances in perpetuity of Jesus Christ Superstar. (laughs) Because I have loved that musical with a passion from a young age. It was a passion I had to keep hidden for many years because it was so uncool to admit to it. But then one by one, I, I gradu- little by little, I gradually discovered there were other actors and other friends who were equally as passionate Secret. and had also hidden their love for Jesus Christ Superstar. And so I, I've already got Mel Gedrich and Sue Perkins on side for this and, and uh, Jez Butterworth has expressed interest in maybe playing a role. Uh, now, the problem would be, you know who would play which roles and I would want to play pilot because I've got pretensions to being a serious actor but the fact is I'm only suited to playing um, Perid so I've played Perid already well I have yes in a a different play in a rather infamous production Um, (laughs) and um, but uh, I think I'm much more suited to this Herod than the one I actually played Um, what's Jez Butterworth's role in this he might have to be relegated to sweeping the stage he just needs to be brought down a peg or two he's one too many awards yeah he's t- he's written too many decade defining plays isn't he <laughs> he needs to get back to basics and you know <laughs> reconnect with the stage and a broom and mel and sue who do you see them as <laughs> mel mel also wants to play Pontius pilot 
But she also she would be is good. self-aware enough to know that she's very unlikely to be cast as that. Mary Magdalene, So, <laughs> she's actually said, I'll probably get cast as Simon Zelotes, um, who, who, uh, who's got that funky number uh, early on, you know, about rising yeah. up against the Romans. <laughs> Um. <laughs> that's, that's great. I can see that. But we could rotate roles. That's the beauty yeah. of it. We could all have a go at every role. <laughs> I mean, I'd like a go at Bloody Mary Magdalene. I think Mariah was a good trial run at that. Yeah, absolutely. Get the corset back on. <laughs> I, I think this is the answer that I've been most convinced by. <laughs> of all the people I genuinely asked. mean it. I'm not trying to look clever. As you can tell, I look anything but clever answering with that. Well, but... also, you liked Jesus Christ Superstar before they did the cool version at Regent's Park. Well, quite, which I saw. <laughs> and me and Mel organised the tickets and we went with a bunch of friends who were Jesus Christ Superstar nuts as well. Honestly, we were all in floods of tears before they sung a word, just the opening chord. And it was pathetic. We were these grown adults crying before it had even properly started. And my wife was with me, who, who doesn't share the same passion for it. And she was like, oh, my God, what a bunch of children. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, all right. So I don't know how you can better that. But number seven, is there a show that you've seen that you'd happily watch on a loop for the rest of time? Well, you know, I'd like to say it was Hamlet or something, but I really, it wouldn't be. And again, it's I... It's Jesus Christ Superstar, isn't it? Well, it's not far off. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's something that in, engendered the same feelings of, and thrills that I, I had from watching Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, and I thought about it because I did... Th- there, are, there are many wonderful plays, but actually, for me, it would be a musical. But the one I'm choosing would be... Hamilton. Mm. I don't think I've seen a show that lived up to the hype and surpassed it quite so spectacularly and blurred genres and melded them together so successfully and so thrillingly and had such a humane, inclusive message which it wore brilliantly lightly on its sleeve. It encapsulates so many things I feel about what theatre should be and what the stories we're telling should be and how we should include everyone in those stories and the more diverse it is, the better it is and the more exciting it is and the richer it is. It was just it was just wonderful, absolutely wonderful. It's the most I've ever spent on a ticket and it's the least I've ever, you know, regretted spending money on a ticket. It, it was just a brilliant thing brilliant thing um that's that's the end of the official questions but i wanted to ask one more which is now two of the most sort of iconic sitcom characters that have come out of tv in the last few years have both been priests so you and then the slightly less hot priest in fleabag (laughs) yeah who that guy again yeah (laughs) (laughs) who would win in a fight oh definitely andrew scott (laughs) definitely i mean i've look i went to see seawall and i saw his biceps and triceps (laughs) I mean, I would literally be playing a game of patter cake. Uh, I'm like a Cabbage Patch doll. The man's a wall of muscle. 
Um, you've got to back yourself. You've got you've got uh, you've got age and experience on him. I've got I've got a few moves, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, but he yeah. won't see it coming. <laughs> yeah, if you you belt out, everything's all right, and he'll uh, he won't know what's hit him. I think Francis Seaton is more likely to sing a song to get out of a fight and get out of a tight <laughs> yeah. corner than than yeah than do anything else. So you if know. they ever do more this country, I hope they give you a musical number. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know whenever episode he reveals that he was in an 80s boy band called the good guys and uh, i actually had to sing the song that they use in that so we did this 80s pastiche it was a mixture of erasure and the pet shop boys oh it was joyous it was brilliant doing that That was Paul Chahidi, fictional priest par excellence. Seven Stages is sponsored by Audible, who have a huge library of audio plays alongside their audiobooks, including The Half-Life of Marie Curie by Lauren Gunderson, who apparently is America's most produced playwright. Uh, This play was actually commissioned by Audible too through their Emerging Playwrights Fund, which is about developing plays driven by language and voice. It's about a period of time that Marie Curie spent at the home of her friend Hertha Ayrton in 1912. Curie went there to escape being hounded by the French press for having an affair with her late husband's student, Paul Langevin. It's beautifully written, it's a lovely ode to female friendship, and it stars Francesca Faradani and Kate Mulgrew, actual Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager. You can get a 30-day free trial at audible.co.uk forward slash theatre, and prices start at 7 99 a month after 30 days, and it renews automatically. That's all for this week. I'm back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, thestage.co.uk can keep you up to date with coronavirus news, as well as interviews, features, reviews and plenty more. Thanks for listening.